Welcome to The Reading Room. I'm Xeni, the creator of A Writer's Lighthouse. In this podcast, we'll read selected passages from novels, short stories, poetry and more, and break down the prose to identify what makes a story memorable and impactful, and what we can learn from it as writers. We'll be looking closely at some of the most engaging and immersive narratives in literature to harness and identify the devices and methods which capture the reader. In each episode, I'll read an extract aloud before we work through a short, close reading of one or two paragraphs. We'll then finish with an exercise for you to try at home. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Hello writers, and welcome to episode 7 of the Reading Room podcast. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. It means so much that you're here. If you're new to the podcast this week, I say welcome. Today's story The Priory of the Orange Tree is a fantasy in a classical sense, an epic 800 plus pages set in a world, in the author's own words, as a feminist reimagining of the legend of George and the Dragon, intertwined with Japanese and Chinese mythology. The story is charged with intricate and diverse world building, captivating characters and draconic wonder, and I loved it. I enjoyed it immensely as a reader, but I was captivated as a writer, studying each paragraph for the how this world was presented to me. If you would like me to explore any tropes, themes or elements in more detail, such as character analysis or pacing, or you have a novel you would like me to look at in future episodes, just send me an email at contact at a writerslighthouse.com. Until then, let's proceed with today's reading. 1. East. The stranger came out of the sea like a water ghost, barefoot and wearing the scars of his journey. He walked as if drunk through the haze of mist that clung like spider silk to Seiki. The stories of old said water ghosts were doomed to live in silence, that their tongues had shriveled along with their skin, and that all that dressed their bones was seaweed, that they would lurk in the shallows, waiting to drag the unwary to the heart of the abyss. Tane had not feared those tales since she was a small child. Now her dagger gleamed before her, It curved like a smile and she fixed her gaze on the figure in the night. When it called to her, she flinched. The clouds released the moonlight they had hidden, enough for her to see him as he was, and for him to see her. This was no ghost. It was an outsider. She had seen him, and he could not be unseen. He was sunburnt, with hair like straw and a dripping beard. The smugglers must have abandoned him to the water and told him to swim the rest of the way. It was clear that he knew nothing of her language, but she understood enough of his to know that he was asking for help, that he wanted to see the warlord of Seiki. Her heart was a fistful of thunder. She dared not speak, for to show she knew his language was to forge a link between them and to betray herself. To betray the fact that just as she was now a witness to his crime, he was a witness to hers. She should be in seclusion, safe behind the walls of the South House, ready to rise, purified for the most important day of her life. Now she was tainted, soiled beyond redemption, all because she had wanted to immerse herself in the sea once more before choosing day. There were rumours that the great Kuriki would favour those with the metal to slip out and seek the waves during seclusion. Instead, he had sent this nightmare. All her life she had been too fortunate, This was her punishment. She held the outsider at bay with a dagger. Faced with death, he began to shake. Her mind became a whirlpool of possibilities, 
each more terrible than the last. If she turned this outsider over to the authorities, she would have to reveal that she had broken seclusion. Choosing day might not proceed. The Honourable Governor of Cape Hassan, this province of Seiki, would never allow the gods into a place that might be fouled with the red sickness. It could be weeks before the city was pronounced safe, and by then it would have been decided that the stranger arriving had been an ill omen, and that the next generation of apprentices, not hers, must be given the chance to be riders. It would cost her everything. She could not report him. Neither could she abandon him. If he did have the red sickness, letting him roam unchecked would endanger the entire island. There was only one choice. She wrapped a strip of cloth around his face to keep him from breathing out the sickness. Her hands quaked. When it was done, she walked him from the black sand of the beach and up to the city, keeping as close as she dared, her blade pressed to his back. Cape Hassan was a sleepless port. She steered the outsider through its night markets, past shrines whittled from driftwood, under the strings of blue and white lanterns that had been hung up for choosing day. Her prisoner stared at it all in silence. The dark obscured his features, but she tapped the flat of her blade on his head, forcing him to lower it. All the while, she kept him as far away from the others as she could. She had an idea of how to isolate him. An artificial island clung to the cape. It was called Erisima, and it was something of a curiosity to the locals. The trading post had been constructed to house a handful of merchants and scholars from the free state of Mentendon. Along with the Lacoustine, who were on the other side of the cape, the Mentz alone had been granted permission to continue trading in Seiki after the island had been closed to the world. Orissima. That was where she would take the outsider. The torch-lit bridge to the trading post was guarded by armed sentries. Few Seikinese had permission to enter, and she was not one of them. The only other way past the fence was the landing gate, which opened once a year to receive goods from the Mentis ships. Tane led the outsider down to the canal. She could not sneak him into Orissima herself, but she knew a woman who could. Someone who would know exactly where in the trading post to hide him. It had been a long time since Nicolay's Roos had received a visitor. He was rationing himself a little wine, a trickle of his paltry allowance when the knock came at his door. Wine was one of his few remaining pleasures in the world, and he had been immersed in breathing its aroma, saving that golden moment before the first taste. Now an interruption. Of course. With a sigh, he uprooted himself, grumbling at the sudden throb in his ankle. Gout was back once more to vex him. Another knock. Oh, do shut up, he muttered. Rain drummed on the roof as he groped for his cane. Plum rain, the Sakenese called it at this time of the year, when the air hung thick and damp as cloud and fruit swelled on the trees. He limped across the mats, cursing under his breath, and opened the door a fraction of an inch. Standing in the darkness outside was a woman. Dark hair fell to her waist and she wore a robe patterned with salt flowers. Rain alone could not have made her as wet as she was. Good evening, learned Dr. Roos, she said. Nicolaes raised his eyebrows. I strongly dislike visitors at this hour, or any hour. He ought to bow, but he had no reason to impress this stranger. How do you know my name? I was told it. No further explanation was forthcoming. I have one of your countrymen with me. He will stay with you tonight, and I will collect him tomorrow at sunset. One of my countrymen? His visitor turned her head a little. A silhouette parted ways with a nearby tree. Smugglers delivered him to Seiki, the woman said. I will take him to the honoured governor tomorrow. When the figure came into the light from his house, Nicolaes turned cold. 
a golden-haired man just as drenched as the woman was standing on his threshold, a man he had never seen in Orissima. Twenty people lived in the trading post. He knew every one of their faces and names, and no mentor ships would arrive with newcomers until later in the season. Somehow, these two had entered unseen. No, Nicholas stared. Saint woman, are you trying to involve me in a smuggling operation? He fumbled for the door. I cannot hide a trespasser if anyone knew. One night. One night, a year, our heads will be sliced from our shoulders regardless. Good evening. As he made to shut the door, the woman jammed her elbow into the gap. If you do this, she said, now so close that Nicholas could feel her breath, you will be rewarded with silver, as much of it as you can carry. Nicholas Ruse hesitated. Silver was tempting. He had played one too many drunken games of cards with the Sentinels and owed them more money than he was likely to make in a lifetime. So far he had stored their threats with the promise of jewels from the next mentor shipment, but he knew well that, when it came, there wouldn't be a single wretched jewel on board, not for the likes of him. His younger self urged him to accept the proposal, if only for the sake of excitement. Before his older, wiser self could intervene, the woman moved away. I will return tomorrow night, she said. Do not let him be seen. Wait, he hissed after her, furious. Who are you? She was already gone. With a glance down the street and a growl of frustration, Nicolas dragged the frightened-looking man into his house. This was madness. If his neighbours realised that he was harbouring a trespasser, he would be hauled before a very angry warlord who was not known for his mercy. Yet, here Nicolas was. He locked the door. Despite the heat, the newcomer was shivering in the mats. His olive skin was burnt across the cheeks, his blue eyes raw from salt. If only to calm himself, Nicolas found a blanket he had bought from Mentenden and handed it to the man, who took it without speaking. He was right to look afraid. Where did you come from? Nicolas asked curtly. I'm sorry, his guest whispered. I don't understand. Are you speaking Sakenese? Inish. That tongue was one he had not heard in some time. That, Nicolas answered in it, was not Sakenese. That was Mentish. I assumed you were too. No, sir. I am from Ascalon, came the meek reply. May I ask your name, since I have you to thank for sheltering me? Typical Inish. Courtesy first. Roos, Nicolas bit out. Dr. Nicolas Roos, Master Surgeon, the person whose life you are currently endangering with your presence. The young man stared at him. Doctor, he swallowed. Dr. Nicolas Roos? Congratulations, boy. The sea water has not impaired your ears. His guest drew a shuddering breath. Dr. Roos, he said, this is divine providence. The fact that the Knight of the Fellowship has brought me to you of all people. Me, Nicolas frowned. Have you met? He strained his memory to his time in Innes, but he was sure he had never clapped eyes on this person. Unless he had been drunk at that time, of course. He had often been drunk in Innes. No, sir, but a friend told me your name. The man dabbed his face with his sleeve. I was sure I would perish at sea, but seeing you has brought me back to life. Thank the saint. Your saint has no power here, Nicolas muttered. Now, what name do you go by? Suliard. Master Trium Suliard, sir, at your service. I was a squire in the household of Her Majesty, Sabran Berethnet, Queen of Innis. Nicolas gritted his jaw. That name stoked a white-hot wrath in his gut. A squire? He sat down. Did Sabran tire of you as she tires of all her subjects? Suliard bristled. If you insult my queen, I will... What will you do? 
Nicolaise looked at him over the rims of his eyeglasses. Perhaps I should call you Trium Dullard. Do you have any notion of what they do to outsiders here? Does Sabran send you to die a particularly drawn-out death? Her Majesty does not know I am here. Interesting. Nicolaise poured him a cup of wine. Here, he said, grudgingly, all of it. Suliad drank it down. Now, Master Suliad, this is important, Nicolaise continued. How many people have seen you? They made me swim to the shore. I came to a cove first. The sand was black. Suliad was shivering. A woman found me and led me into the city at knife point. She left me alone in a stable. Then a different woman arrived and bid me follow her. She took me to the sea and we swam together until we came to a jetty. There was a gate at the end. And it was open. Yes. The woman must know one of the sentinels. Must have asked them to leave the landing gate open. Suliad rubbed his eyes. His time at sea had weathered him, but Nicolaise could see now that he was only young, perhaps not even twenty. Dr. Roos, he said, I have come here on a mission of the utmost importance. I must speak to the... I will have to stop you there, Master Suliard, Nicolaise cut in. I have no interest in why you are here. But whatever your reasons, you came here to do it without permission from any authority, which is folly. If the chief officer finds you and they drag you away for interrogation, I wish to be able to say in all honesty that I have not the faintest idea why you turned up on my doorstep in the middle of the night, thinking you would be welcome in Seiki. Suliard blinked. Chief officer... The Sakenese official in charge of this floating scrapyard, though he seems to think of himself as a minor god. Do you know what this place is, at least? Orisma, the last western trading post in the east. Its existence was what gave me the hope that the warlord might see me. I assure you, Nicolay said, that under no circumstances will Pito Sunadama receive a trespasser at his court. What he will do, should he get wind of you, is to execute you. Suliad said nothing. Nicolaes briefly considered telling his guests that his rescuer planned to come back for him, perhaps to alert the authorities to his presence. He decided against it. Suliad might panic and try to flee, and there was nowhere for him to run. Tomorrow. He would be gone tomorrow. Just then, Nicolaes heard voices outside. Footsteps clattered on the wooden steps of the other dwellings. He felt a quiver in his belly. Hide, he said, and grasped his cane. Suliad ducked behind a folding screen. Nicolaise opened the door with shaking hands. Centuries ago, the first warlord of Seiki had signed the Great Edict and closed the island to all but the Lancastrine and the Mentish to protect his people from the Draconic Plague. Even after the plague abated, the separation had endured. Any outsider who arrived without permission would be put to death, as would anyone who abetted him. In the street, there was no sign of the sentinels, but several of his neighbours had gathered. Nicolaise joined them. What in the name of Galian is happening? He asked the cook, who was staring at a point above their heads, mouth wide enough to catch butterflies in it. I recommend not using that particular facial expression in the future, Harold. People might think you are half-wit. Look, Roos, the cook breathed. Look, this had better be... He trailed off when he saw it. An enormous head towered over the fence of Arisima. It belonged to a creature born of jewel and sea. Clouds steamed from its scales, scales of moonstone, so bright they seemed to glow from within. A crust of gem-like droplets glistened on each one. Each eye was a burning star, and each horn was quicksilver, a gleam under the pallid moon. The creature flowed with the grace of a ribbon past the bridge and took to the skies, light and quiet as a paper kite. A dragon, 
even as it rose over Cape Hassan, others were ascending from the water, leaving a chill mist in their wake. Nicolaes pressed a hand to the drumbeat in his chest. Now what, he murmured, are they doing here? So, what did you think of the world we've entered today? Personally, I love how this story begins with an unknown entity, a stranger at his arrival, weather-worn and scarred from the sea. We too are strangers entering the land in the east, and we are about to find out what the land makes of strangers. The simile associated with the stranger, like a water ghost, hints at fable and fairy tale, and as one that is feared. Indeed, the second paragraph adds to this image of what the east considers a water ghost to look like, and what its purpose is. This cultural belief is illustrated further through its roots in the stories of old, fueling the story with an ancient, ethereal and mythical mindset that is embraced by the people of Seiki. The description is stunning and I reread it a few times before moving on to the next paragraph. But I digress, today is about world building, so let's look at a few things there for today's episode. Let's begin with the title of this chapter and the scope of the land that we have been introduced to so far. We have an idea of where in the world we are by the cardinal direction of east. A point on the compass, the marker grounds us to a location within the world and we can expect to learn more about its place within the story, such as its beliefs, laws and cultures through the eyes of the characters we are to meet. Incidentally, chapter 2 is entitled West, chapter 3 is East, and so it continues, structurally flitting between the two. We learn early on that Seiki is the name of the island overall, that Cape Hassan is the province of Seiki, it has a chief official, a warlord, plus an honourable governor, there is also the artificial island of Arisima, closed to the world by a select few, which houses merchants and scholars from the free state of Mentenden. Races are presented to us simply by reference throughout the prose and by their language. Seikinese, Inish from Ascalon, Mentish. Our introduction to Tane suggests a world that has built walls around itself, that it feels a need to protect itself from external forces. Alongside the glimpse into her life as a child, we see her in the present, older, and with a dagger in her hand in the presence of an outsider who is spiralling her thoughts and survival instincts. She is not where she should be, and this feeds the reader's curiosity further. The ruling bodies of the East and West are delivered with seamless exposition through the eyes of the characters. Take Tani's fears, for instance. Her fear of the stranger is rooted in a societal stigma against outsiders and the red sickness. She is afraid for the repercussions of being exposed for breaking seclusion, and she is also afraid of acknowledging the language spoken by this outsider and of being bound together by the language itself. Her learned instinct regarding smugglers who travel the waters, abandoning those in their ships and leaving them to die at sea, presents a further threat from the water and adds to this theme of fear. With only a few references, we are, so far, introduced to an atmospheric sphere of danger, risk, secrets and rebellion. As Tani decides to harbour the outsider, the language shifts from stranger to prisoner as she takes him through Cape Hisan to Arisima. Note how we are shown her fear and trepidation rather than told she is afraid through how her hands quaked as she wrapped a cloth around the outsider's face to keep out the sickness. The sleepless port and its night markets and shrines under blue and white lanterns is a sight to behold and yet there is an undertone of restrictions and rules which states are closed off from trade who has permission to enter. Why is this the case? What happened? What do you make of the character, Nicolaes, and what his backstory tells us of the world he inhabits in Arisma? What of his conversations with Trium and how they reveal his feelings towards the Queen of Innes and her reign? 
All of these experiences, impressions and conversations provide hints at the novel's undercurrent politics, beliefs and cultural nuances. Think also about Seiku's traditions and rituals, such as Choosing Day, located in the South House and where Tano was meant to be as part of her seclusion. Seclusion, purification and selection. These are just some of the powerful indicators of societal structures presented in the novel so far and are felt by the characters we come across. As the story continues, we will learn more about all of these and we'll see how the themes tie together. And then, as the chapter closes, we have the arrival of dragons, creatures born of jewel and sea, stunning yet terrifying, graceful yet deadly. The people of Seiki are not surprised by their existence, but by their sudden return and what it means. And so, we turn the page. Here are some notable tips on world building. When crafting a fictional world, Consider the following question prompts to guide the structural blueprint of your story. These are just a few examples, but the more elements of the world you consider and list out, the more depth and dimension you can create and weave into your narrative. Number one, what type of world are you building? Is it a dystopian future for our Earth, or is it an alternative Earth? Number two, what laws, rules and restrictions are in effect in this world? Consider its politics, its culture, its people, and so on. Number three, consider the terrain and its environment. Does it follow the Earth's seasons or does it follow a different pattern? If it's the latter, how will this affect the climate and livestock? And so on. Number four, what is the backstory of this world? How old is it? What is its history? If there is conflict, where does this stem from? Number five, what languages do the people speak? Do beasts converse with humans? How do civilizations communicate? Number six, consider the stories you have read, including today's reading. Revisit the fantastical elements within these novels and make a list of what excites you and explore the prose with this refreshed lens. Today's exercise. If you're interested in writing a fantasy story, decide what aspect of the story you are most keen to start with. Is it the world itself you want to create first or the characters that drive the narrative forward? Whatever excites you about the world, start there and list out as many qualities as you can in five minutes. Once that time is up, restart your timer for 15 minutes and write. Good luck. Thank you for joining me this week. If you haven't already, I hope you'll follow or subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast app. We've covered a lot in today's episode, so if you'd like to review the full show notes, including today's exercise, head to awriterslighthouse.com forward slash podcast and search by book title. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you know fellow writers who would find these episodes helpful, an Apple podcast review or recommendation would be greatly appreciated to expand our writing community. It's great that you're here on this journey with me in today's episode of the Reading Room Podcast. Until next time, Keep reading and writing with your eyes to the horizon.